Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So the first couple of stories I'm going to be covering just happen to both involve celebrities, and they're both at least tangentially related to the subject of religion. First, we have a recent controversy involving actor Bradley Cooper that you may have already heard about. He's going to be starring as the famous conductor Leonard Bernstein, and in, is it Bernstein or Bernstein? Anyway, reminds me of the Mandala effect with the Berenstain versus Berenstein. Steen Bear uh, thing. Uh, I should do uh, an episode on the Mandala effect someday. But anyway, I'm pretty sure it's Leonard Bernstein. I almost said Leonard Berenstein, the great Ursine composer. Leonard Bernstein? Thank you, man who lives in my computer. That's why I thought. He didn't sound too confident about it, though, did he? He was like, Leonard Bernstein? Like he was taking his best guess. But that was a pronunciation I looked up on YouTube, kidding aside. But let's try this again. So he, Bradley Cooper, is going to be starring as the famous conductor Leonard Bernstein in an upcoming movie simply entitled Maestro, I believe. The controversy comes in because Cooper, who is of Irish and Italian descent, so pretty much the same as me, uh, he wears a prosthetic nose in the film to look more like Bernstein, who was Jewish. The somewhat inflammatory or jarring hashtag, and please forgive me ahead of time, quote-unquote Jew face, began trending on social media. And I'm a big fan of Larry David and his show Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he used to often reference the fact that he was Jewish on the show. And I remember one episode, he had this adversarial relationship with his manager's wife. It was Susie, right, I think? And they got into an argument over who had more of a quote-unquote Jew face. But in the context of this story, the term, once again, forgive me, quote-unquote Jew face, this might be the most awkward, unintentional, weakened-out drinking uh, game word or phrase in the whole history of the podcast. Um, anyway, uh, the term wasn't trending as a slur or insult. It was meant, at least I hope not, it was meant to draw a comparison to so-called blackface. Some people were upset by what they saw as a non-Jewish person wearing a large prosthetic nose in order to appear more Jewish. Uh, there were even some suggesting it was anti-Semitic. But Bernstein's children actually came out and defended Bradley Cooper, saying that he had worked with the Bernstein family throughout the process of preparing for the role and that he was very respectful, etc. I'll read a bit from this article. But actually, before I read it, I'll just quickly read some headlines that I took a screenshot of. So there's one from Slate Magazine, the Bradley Cooper quote-unquote Jew face, uh, drink up, Mazel tov, controversy, is about more than Leonard Bernstein's nose. And then deadline, maestro nose controversy. Leonard Bernstein's children defend Bradley Cooper's use of prosthetics. Newsweek, is Bradley Cooper's prosthetic nose anti-Semitic? And so this is actually that deadline article, and it's dated August 16th. And so it's entitled, Maestro Nose Controversy, Leonard Bernstein's Children Defend Bradley Cooper's Use of Prosthetics. 
And so it begins, Bradley Cooper was hit pretty much immediately with controversy as he unveiled a first look at his forthcoming Netflix pick, Maestro, when the internet encountered the large prosthetic nose he adopted to portray legendary composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein. But Bernstein's children have now come to his defense. And here's a quote, Bradley Cooper included the three of us along every step of his amazing journey as he made his film about our father, wrote Jamie Alexander and Nina Bernstein in a statement posted to their late father's X page, I guess. Twitter, yeah, that's a whole other uh, can of worms. We were touched to the core to witness the depth of his commitment, his loving embrace of our father's music, and the sheer open-hearted joy he brought to his exploration. It breaks our hearts, the trio continued, to see any misrepresentations or misunderstandings of his efforts. It happens to be true that Leonard Bernstein had a nice big nose. Bradley chose to use makeup to amplify his resemblance, and we're perfectly fine with that. The Bernsteins further expressed their belief that their father would have been quote-unquote fine with the use of prosthetics, and that, once again in quotes, any strident complaints around this issue are perhaps disingenuous attempts to bring a successful person down a notch, a practice we observed all too often perpetrated on our own father. At all times during the making of this film, we could feel the profound respect and, yes, the love that Bradley brought to his portrait of Leonard Bernstein and his wife, our mother, Felicia. We feel so fortunate to have had this experience with Bradley, and we can't wait for the world to see his creation. My personal take, you know, this is a very strange and nuanced case. I honestly don't think Bradley Cooper or anyone involved meant any ill will, quite the opposite. And you could argue in a sense that Cooper probably wasn't wearing a prosthetic nose because he wanted to look more Jewish, but he was wearing a prosthetic nose because he wanted to look more like Leonard Bernstein specifically, who happened to be Jewish. On the other hand, and this is one of the first things that occurred to me when I first heard this story, Bradley Cooper kind of naturally already has a strong or prominent nose of his own. He's a good-looking guy. I'm not saying he has a big nose. It, it fits his face, but, you know, it's kind of a a strong nose. He probably could have easily gotten away without wearing a prosthetic and still would have looked close enough to Bernstein. And just recently we had Oppenheimer where we had another Gentile actor playing a Jewish person. Is it Killian Murphy? Is that how you pronounce it? As Robert Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer had a, a more pronounced nose and kind of different facial features than the actor playing him. But I think Murphy still did a good job of capturing the essence of Oppenheimer. And he had that kind of haunted look in his eyes that Oppenheimer had. Um, at least in that famous clip that I've always found very moving, where the real Oppenheimer, quoting the Bhagavad Gita, says, And now I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Which they do have him say a couple of times in the film. And yet I think it lacked the gravitas of the real Oppenheimer saying it in that famous clip I just mentioned. 
And I think Killian Murphy and Bradley Cooper are both uh, charismatic and talented actors. I really like them both. But it makes you wonder why they wouldn't have tried to find actual Jewish actors for the parts. Which, in fairness, maybe they did. But, uh, you know, if not out of principle, then at least cynically, to try to avoid this kind of controversy or backlash. I think I've heard before that sometimes higher-ups at a studio will insist on casting big-name actors in an attempt to draw people to the box office. So it could have been partly that phenomenon, you know, influencing the casting too. And I feel bad even criticizing or questioning the casting because they're both, once again, talented actors who I like. But uh, yeah, makes you wonder though, you know, you have these prominent Jewish figures that they're making biopics and, uh, about why not try to find a Jewish actor. But another thing about the prosthetic nose, even though Bradley Cooper wanted to wear it out of dedication to the role, you would think someone involved might go, wait, there's kind of this anti-Semitic stereotype that Jews all have big noses. Maybe this isn't a great idea. And once again, Cooper already has a kind of... Uh, pronounced or strong enough knows that he probably didn't even need the prosthetic, so why take the chance when someone should have known it might be seen as offensive? I don't know. And a strange thing that occurred to me is how, you know, it's funny, you can just get away with something like this, a person wearing a fake nose to look more like a person of a different ethnicity, but... Say if a white actor darkened their skin to look more like someone else of a different race or ethnicity, especially a, um, you know, a black or African person, that definitely wouldn't fly. I think the last example of that I can remember was Robert Downey Jr. in uh, Tropic Thunder, which was meant to be satirical, and even that was uh, seen as rather controversial at the time. And I think there's a couple of reasons why blackface is considered more taboo or less acceptable. One is the existence in relatively recent history of racist phenomena like minstrel shows, where you had white performers donning blackface or exaggerated caricatures of black people used in advertising, etc. I think another reason why you can kind of squeak by with something like this is in modern times, Jewish people are now generally viewed as white, even though there are some exceptions. There's Ethiopian Jews, for instance, and there's the fact that Jewishness refers to being part of an ethno-religious group with roots that go back to the ancient Middle East. But once again, I think Jewish people are generally considered white, so a white person wearing a prosthetic to look more like another white person might not necessarily seem as jarring or taboo as a white person wearing blackface, but I can still see why some Jewish people might be offended by it because it does play into Jewish stereotypes. The Middle Ages were rife with anti-Semitism, and there were pogroms, and uh, Jewish people were further marginalized and persecuted. You even had Christian mobs killing Jews, uh, all sorts of lurid rumors about um, Jewish people poisoning wells and having horns and blood libel and all of that ugly stuff. And you can look at medieval art and find a lot of... Um, just offensive caricatures of Jewish people often depicted with, uh, with large noses, etc. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to speculate or, or assert that this long history of anti-Semitism probably culminated 
in one of history's worst nightmares, the Holocaust, where roughly six million Jewish men, women, and children were systematically murdered, along with millions of non-Jews as well, such as homosexuals, Romani, prisoners of war, etc. And so, although the Jews weren't the only target of the Nazi regime, they had, uh, or you could say one of their main goals was the attempted elimination, the genocide of the Jewish people. And I think what allowed a whole, a whole nation to go along with that is that they were primed by this long history of anti-Semitism. And so I think these kind of stereotypes still hit a nerve for many Jewish people. And so I can get why this type of thing, the prosthetic nose, etc., still rubs some people the wrong way, or why they might find it concerning. And I can already hear someone out there saying, but some Jewish people really do have big noses. Yes, yeah, some do, many don't, and there's many non-Jews who have prominent noses. I used to be one of them. I haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, like I alluded to earlier, I'm mostly Irish and Italian, and I inherited a prominent nose that I was self-conscious about growing up, uh, even well into adulthood. And when I was around 29, my truck at the time got totaled, and I used the money to get a septo-rhinoplasty. It was basically two procedures in one. I had a bad deviated septum fixed, and at the same time, a plastic surgeon shaved down the bump or hump on the ridge of my nose, or the bridge of my nose, rather, to make it straighter or less prominent. Would I do it again? I don't know. Uh, it came out pretty good. Uh, I definitely would at least have the uh, deviated septum still fixed. Uh, definitely improve my breathing, but uh, back on track. I just found this Leonard Bernstein-Bradley Cooper controversy kind of strange or interesting, and uh, I felt inspired to cover it. And Bradley Cooper seems like a good dude. I think he was just trying to be dedicated to his craft and probably just want to do as good a job as possible portraying Leonard Bernstein. Probably didn't need the prosthetic, though. Uh, anyway, next story. And so this one involves Doja Cat. I had heard the name before, but I didn't really know who she was until this controversy came up on my radar, so to speak. She's a relatively young singer. I think she's in her late 20s. And even though I'm not really into rap or hip-hop, with some exceptions, I quickly found myself taking a liking to her as I was researching the story. She's a very eccentric and creative individual, traits that I really appreciate. And she's one of those singers or performers that's a magnet for controversy, kind of like Lady Gaga, because stylistically they tend to be a bit weird and experimental and, you know, sometimes utilize imagery that can kind of uh, disturb some people. And that leads religious or conspiratorial types to accuse them of being satanic or part of the Illuminati. But she recently came out with a video for her song Paint the Town Red, and people on social media were calling it satanic, etc. Ben Shapiro released a video entitled Doja Cat in Bed with Satan, 
question mark. And he was ragging on the imagery and doing his whole music snob thing. He recites the lyrics with, I think, Bach in the background or some kind of classical music. And the lyrics to the song are somewhat simple, as is often the case with rap or rock songs. So yeah, taken out of context and condescendingly recited like spoken word, they're going to perhaps sound somewhat silly or unimpressive. So uh, now I'm going to read the lyrics to uh, this piece of crap. And uh, I'm going to point out how bad this is by juxtaposing it with one of the great pieces of music ever written so that you can tell kind of how we have declined here. Because obviously this is great art. We've been told that this is great art because people apparently like this. I don't know why. But then again, I don't understand the taste of the American people, obviously, because I mean, who wouldn't love a song featuring a woman dressed in nothing but body paint, bald, wearing devil horns and cutting the, the umbilical cord of an alien creature? Who wouldn't who wouldn't love this? So I know he's being sarcastic, but the way he described it just sounded awesome. <laughs> if I had already seen it, I'd be like, I got to watch that. Here are the lyrics to paint the town red to the strains of Bach's first Brandenburg concerto. Let's do this thing. Walk on by, walk on by, walk on by, walk on by. Yeah, bitch, I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. I let all that get to my head. I don't care. I paint the town red. I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. I let all that get to my head. I don't care. I paint the town red. And I don't even know if Shapiro realized it, but the walk on by part is actually a direct sample from Dionne Warwick's song Walk on By, I believe. So poor Dionne Warwick catching some uh, shrapnel too. But uh, this whole thing of reading lyrics out of context, you know, divorced from the music they were meant to go to, uh, you could do the same thing with any number of songs, you know, that are very popular and widely liked. Say, for instance, like the Stones' uh, Start Me Up. Great rock song, but yeah, if you just read the lyrics on their own, they wouldn't be that impressive. And to that point, as someone who's been a fan of rock music since I was really young, I kind of realized early on that it's that synergistic marriage of words and music that really makes a great song. But often the lyrics, like I was just saying, on their own might seem somewhat lacking uh, because a big part of rock and rap is repetition, rhythm, and you often have the same words or phrases, sometimes relatively simple, being repeated over and over. And yeah, on paper, they might not seem that impressive. But when you take the words and lay them over or sing them to music, they suddenly take on a dynamic or a dimension or depth that they lack on their own. And poetry and song lyrics are technically both considered verse. There are some song lyrics that are so good, so well-crafted, that they can stand on their own as poetry. That's one of the reasons I'm a huge Doors fan. Morrison was a poet, and his lyrics were so transporting and pregnant with imagery as... People often describe really good poetry, you know, that uh, his song lyrics could stand alone as poetry and often his poetry could be taken and turned into song lyrics. But I think, you know, in the music world, that's somewhat of an exception. It, it's not always the case. It seems to me that most lyrics, especially in pop music, 
are for the most part just meant to be sung to music and seem rather incomplete on their own. But anyway, uh, that was quite a digression. But Shapiro reacts to the video and criticizes the quote-unquote satanic imagery. And in fairness, there is a lot of morbid and even demonic-looking imagery in the video. But to me, that's a plus. I'm a non-believer, agnostic atheist. I don't believe in a literal devil or demons. But I love dark or demonic-looking art, medieval hell paintings, old woodcuts of devils and witches, the lurid works of Hieronymus Bosch. I'm a fan of Gustav Dorr, especially his Paradise Lost illustrations. And given that, I love the video. Uh, and apparently Doja Cat's an artist herself, and some of her own paintings, I guess, were incorporated into the video. And I mentioned medieval art, and some of the imagery definitely has that feel. It's almost like this fantastical fever dream. She's riding on top of some kind of giant troll dragon type of creature. Then she's dressed in a red robe and standing around with a grim reaper figure. And then, a, you know, her and a man are painted black and both have horns. So very lurid, somewhat morbid, and yet really fun and colorful at the same time. And even as I mentioned, I'm usually not really into hip-hop or rap that much. I actually found myself really liking the song and her singing too. Uh, but there's another part to the whole Doja Cat quote-unquote satanic imagery controversy. She got a couple of new tattoos, I guess, and I, I think they're new, which people on social media were describing as demonic or satanic. And I have to say, I personally love the tattoos, not only the subject matter, but the quality and detail as well. And once again, kind of like the imagery in her video, the tattoos are of images some people might find strange or morbid. She got a really detailed tattoo of a bat skeleton with its skeletal wings outstretched on her back. And even if you find it morbid, and once again, I personally like that kind of stuff, either way, it's a really impressive tattoo, I think. And then she got another one, I think, on her arm of a strange anthropomorphic creature. It kind of looks like a little armadillo standing on its hind legs. It's actually kind of cute in a weird way. Uh, I really like this one, too. As I was saying, I'm a big fan of strange medieval art. And it's actually a creature originally drawn by a medieval artist that I hadn't heard of before. And actually, now that I look at it, the tattoo component of the story goes all the way back to April. I'm looking at a Vibe article, and it's dated April 17th of this year. It's entitled, Doja Cat Addresses Critics Calling Her New Tattoo Demonic. And there's a subheading, and it reads, The reactions come after the Planet Her artist previously spoke on being part of the Illuminati. And I probably don't need to say it, but just in case, no, she's not actually a member of the Illuminati. If a secret society by that name even exists, I think historically... There were organizations that did bear that name, uh, but anyway, it continues, Doja Cat had time on Sunday to address some unwarranted comments, flooding her Instagram and Twitter mentions about one of her tattoos. 
as the Kill Bill co-star, and I believe they're referring to a song Kill Bill, not the Quentin Tarantino movie or movies. It was two parts, right? Uh, Doja Cat's only in her late 20s, and Kill Bill was a long time ago now, uh, was accused of being a Satanist under a photo set featuring... Lucenti or Lucenti, a mythological figure she has imprinted on her body, and that's the armadillo looking, that's how I'm going to refer to it, creature, as one fan issued faux concern when commenting, and here's a quote, used to love you, but you clearly sold your soul to the devil, unfollow, Doja replied, whatever helps you sleep at night. The Grammy winner later chimed in, your fear is not my problem, well said. I actually think that's a very good attitude to have. But then also says uh, she, Doja Cat, also added an explanation noting that the figure is not quote-unquote demonic, but actually is a symbol of imperfection. It is part of Fortunio or Fortunio Lichetti or Lissetti's 1616 artwork of monsters formerly titled De monstrous public domain. Uh, yeah, I found the uh, image and it's public domain. Da, 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 da. Let's see. Uh, and it's referring to a certain nonprofit organization, but it's not giving the, the name. Um, but a nonprofit organization dedicated to the exploration of the history of art and literature reported, and here's a quote Lecenti did not see deformity as something negative, as the result of errors or failures in the course of nature. Instead, he likened nature to an artist who, faced with some imperfection in the materials to shape, ingeniously created another form still more admirable. And I actually think that can be seen as being a very positive or inspirational message. I think all of us probably have little things we're insecure about or, you know, um, physical hangups. And uh, who knows, maybe Doja Cat has things that she's self-conscious or insecure about. And she's embracing this image as a symbol of kind of owning your quote-unquote imperfection and not seeing yourself as um, being imperfect as a, as a, in a bad way or that you're broken, but owning and accepting it and kind of wearing it with pride, you know? So it, that, it could be something like that going on, which if that's the case, I think that's a very positive thing. And even if there wasn't some deep meaning and she just got it because she thought it was a cool image, I would still say more power to you. <laughs> and I think it's a cool image too. And there's actually kind of a cool quote here from that medieval artist. Well, early 1600s, would that technically be the Renaissance? I think so. Um, anyway, uh, well, the Renaissance took place in different areas at different times. I believe the Italian Renaissance was the first, was where it took off. I don't know. Anyway, um, it's been a while since I took an art history class, but I find it, uh, find all that stuff fascinating, but I forget some of the dates. Anyway, um, it says the outlet added that Lichetti or Lissetti himself stated, it is said that I see the convergence of both nature and art because one of the other not being able to make what they want, they at least make what they can. I think, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. 
And it's kind of following that theme of accepting or embracing imperfection. But do I think Doja Cat is satanic? No. And as a non-believer who doesn't believe once again in the existence of the devil, uh, I wouldn't care if she was as long as she wasn't harming anyone. Especially, I especially wouldn't care if she was a non-theistic Satanist. As I've talked about ad nauseum on the show, you have popular uh, organizations such as the late Anton LaVey's Church of Satan and uh, the newer Satanic Temple, which are both non-theistic. They're essentially atheistic organizations. They don't believe in a literal devil. They just see Satan or Lucifer or view him as a symbol of rebellion or free thought, etc. Okay, so now for the last story or segment of the week. I've really gotten back into watching atheist versus theist debates lately, and I've been keeping or making a list of debate moments that really catch my attention. I was going to go over a few of them on today's episode, but since the first two segments already took up a decent amount of time, I think I'll only go over one today. I was watching a recent panel discussion where there were four participants, or did I say that strange, four participants? Anyway, you know what I mean, and a moderator. And I think there may have been some kind of a panpsychist organization or podcast behind it, but I also saw that the video, or videos plural, there were multiple parts, were up on Premiere Unbelievable's YouTube channel as well, or the YouTube channel for Unbelievable, which is a Christian podcast hosted by Justin Brierley. And Premiere is a Christian British network or radio station, and Unbelievable falls under that umbrella. But yeah, I saw the videos on multiple YouTube channels. But one of the panelists was Richard Dawkins, representing atheism as the host or moderator seemed to imply. But I think Richard clarified that he was there to represent biology and science. Then there was Richard Swinburne, representing theism or Christianity. A professor named Jessica Frazier, I think it is, representing Hinduism or Eastern religious or an Eastern religious perspective. And then a philosopher named Sylvia Jonas, I think it is, I believe representing Judaism or philosophy. And I've watched this panel discussion two or three times now, and there's one particular moment that really gets under my skin every time, where Sylvia Jonas, and I really hope I'm not butchering her name, uh, who I just mentioned, challenges Dawkins almost as if she's trying to guilt him about his atheistic worldview. It's very strange. I'll play the clip, uh, actually several clips, and for context, first she's addressing Richard Swinburne, who had just finished waxing philosophical or poetic about theism, and then she addresses Dawkins. So here's the first clip. Sorry, I, I just... I would like to ask a question. Um, actually, it's a question, uh, question for Richard Dawkins, um, but um, inspired by what you just said. So, mm. and, and it sort of, uh, I think, illustrates my point of view. There is so much beauty in what you just said. And I can... So much beauty. So much beauty in what you just said. And it gives a certain uh, perspective on our otherwise completely random existence. Um, and it gives people dignity. So it, I was just reminded of um, uh, the novel by Henrik Sienkiewicz, uh, Quo Vadis. It was turned into a, a 
a popular Hollywood, Hollywood movie, but I'm talking about the actual novel that he received the Nobel Prize for. And it mm. describes the persecution of Christians um, under the rule of Nero mm -hmm. in uh, ancient Rome. So early Christianity. And it was so atrocious um, what they did to Christian people back in the days. And their belief, their faith gave them such dignity when they had to face the most horrible, horrible things that were being done to them. And I found that extremely moving. I found I've, it's, it's impossible to ignore the kinds of power that a religion and a religious belief can unfold. And it's something I think as a philosopher, at least I want to respect. And that's something that belongs onto the syllabus of every good philosophy undergraduate course. My question for you, Richard Dawkins, is on your worldview, what do you make of the belief of so many people in the world who are theists or have theistic inclinations? Um, I'd say it's, uh, we spoke about the numbers, uh, or I mentioned them in the book. Mm. I think it's at least 95% or some number like that. 7% of the world are non-religious. That's right. 7% um, of the world's population self-identify as atheists. Mm. So the vast majority of people have at least some kind of theistic inclinations, whatever exactly the, uh, whatever exact form they might be taking. Are all of these people only deluded? Is that, is that the only thing we can say about that? Yes. <laughs> and so I absolutely love how Dawkins just matter-of-factly says, yes. <laughs> you know, like, what do you want me to say? So is it just me, or does the way she poses the question to him sound almost like it's kind of pointed or like she has an accusatory tone. Uh, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. And maybe I'm making too much of it or reading too much into it. Uh, and as I think Dawkins will say, the fact that a majority of people believe something or that you know a great deal of people believe something doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I will say in fairness to her that I myself find some uh, martyr stories from antiquity moving, and I've even contemplated covering some on the show, uh, especially the story of Perpetua, which I've wanted to do a mini-documentary on for years now. Uh, she also talks about how the fact that religious belief provides some kind of benefit or gives people dignity should be included, you know, means it should be included in every good undergraduate philosophy syllabus. I mean, she's the philosopher slash academic, but sounds a little weird to me. I can see examining the supposed or possible benefits of religion or spiritual belief at the point where religion comes up uh, during a philosophy course, but she seems to really want to stress that. But here's the next clip. Okay, then. <laughs> I mean, what, what argument are you making? Um, mm. we, don't, we don't decide such things by majority vote. <laughs> no. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is that besides offering an explanatory competing hypothesis to questions about the first instances of our cosmos or perhaps about whatever sustains the cosmos, religion and theistic belief does so much more. Mm. And I think there, is, uh, there should be a place uh, in any philosophy thinking about this that respects all the different functions and benefits that theistic belief has. What, what, more, what more are you thinking of? What, what do you say does so much more? What are you thinking of there? 
Sorry? What are you thinking of when you say religious belief does so much more? Well, it gives, it makes sense of, as I said, it gives a sense to something that is otherwise completely unexplainable. Um, When we look at the ethical dimensions of religious belief, it can give people guidance, how to behave, how to act with one another. It can give uh, answers how to, as Richard Swinburne just explained to us, it can give us a way of facing, um, well, extremely difficult life situations, etc., etc. It gives comfort and consolation. Somehow it sounds a little bit like, well... It's to me. I it, I feel like it's a little bit more than that. When you say it like that, I assume what you have in mind is that um, it comforts us the way uh, wishful thinking sometimes comforts yes. us. Yes. Once again, I love his frankness. It sounds like you're saying it's just wishful thinking. Yes. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I think everyone should be free to believe what they want and practice the religion of their choice. There's even aspects of various religions that I respect or admire. And I think there can be value and wisdom to be found in religious symbolism and religious stories and texts. But I feel the same way about mythology, you know, and what are myths but the stories and beliefs of dead religions. Uh, I don't believe in the miracle stories of the Bible any more than I believe that Athena sprang from Zeus's head or that Prometheus stole fire from the gods. But yeah, I have no problem with people being religious. That's their choice. And I understand the desire to want to believe in something. My problem is with an academic enabling or endorsing the suspension of disbelief that religion requires. And I believe she even suggests that religion can provide answers to questions regarding the beginning of the cosmos and other things that otherwise are quote-unquote unexplainable. And it's true that religion can help comfort people looking for answers to such questions, but I guess I would expect her as an academic or learned person to not be so supportive of people falling back on religion to fill in the gaps in our scientific knowledge of the universe we live in. Uh, just seems kind of weird. That's exactly what you mean. Yes. So what do you make of the fact that there are people who are extremely educated, who have read your books, um, who know their way around in the natural sciences and yet hold on to theistic beliefs? Well, um, many of them, if you actually ask them what they believe, it turns out that they are what they might call spiritual. Um, what, what's the difference? Well, um, I'm spiritual. When I, when I look up at the stars, when I look up at the Milky Way, I have a feeling, an overwhelming emotional reaction to that. And you could call that spiritual. So when you say that highly educated people in science are religious, you want to ask them, do they actually believe, for example, that Jesus is the son of God? Do they actually believe they're going to survive their own death? I would ask them that sort of question. Do you think that the people you're talking about believe they're going to survive death? Yes, I think I cannot speak so much for um, the Christian point of view, but I know of quite a few people who are scientists and who are observant Jews and who believe that the halakha, the Jewish uh, law, is literally true. Yes, but do they believe they're going to survive death? Well, that's... It's it's a question. That's a that big is, question. It's a question because that is, have, doesn't have the same prominent place in Judaism. I know as it, it doesn't. Has in that's why I asked it. Um, the, 
I, I asked it precisely because that is a scientific question. The brain is what does the thinking. When the brain decays, do they? Do you think you're going to survive death? Do they mm -hmm. think? They, do you think you're going to survive death? I don't know. I wish I had such a firm answer to it. I actually thought that was an awesome response by Dawkins. He pointed out that many scientists who claim to be spiritual may not necessarily be theists. Of course, some, like Francis Collins, are, and there could be a certain amount of compartmentalization going on there. And I also like how he pointedly asked her if she personally thought she was going to survive her own death. And I thought her response may have been, once again, a little snarky or passive-aggressive. She says she wishes she had such a firm answer to it or something like that, almost as if she thought Dawkins was wrong to have his own firm, atheistic or scientific materialist view on death. Can you just hear my chihuahua breathing there? Anyway, <laughs> she's sitting behind me on my computer chair. But in fairness to her, not uh, the philosopher, not my chihuahua, it sounds like English probably isn't her first language, so maybe she didn't necessarily intend for her comment to have that little barb in it, but it kind of sounded that way, to me at least. Well, But well, I certainly don't think that um, I should dismiss somebody who believes it for good reasons. Good reasons meaning... You know, a certain upbringing, a certain conviction that their religious tradition has a point should just be disqualified as people who are doing are engaged in wishful thinking. I like how upbringing is a good excuse to hold on to what are probably erroneous supernatural beliefs to her. And once again, people are free to believe what they want. When I meet a religious person in real life, I don't try to deconvert them or tell them their beliefs are BS. If they ask what my beliefs are or want to wax philosophical about the big questions or talk in depth about religion, I won't hide my skepticism and I'll tell them what my view honestly is, but, you know, politely. I don't know what she expects of Dawkins. No one's forcing a religious person to buy a copy of The God Delusion or listen to an atheist podcast or watch an atheist versus theist debate. If they want to avoid that stuff, they can. But atheists and skeptics should be free to voice their opinions just like anyone else. What does she want Dawkins to apologize and promise to stop being a meanie? <laughs> I'm sorry I threatened your suspension of disbelief by speaking logically and plainly about religion. Just to interject here to bring Jessica in for a moment. Just a point of agreement, though. I, I think Richard Dawkins is fine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, with those who are culturally Christian who enjoy collective... Um, comings together and community building and the artworks and all the, there are some good things that come out of religious community, which I think you'll both agree give people a sense of purpose and um, togetherness, strength, etc., and, and beautiful, wonderful art as well. The point of the disagreement, though, is that it's just wishful thinking in terms of the scientific hypothesis that. Yes, I mean the, 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 the music and the art we're we're certainly agreed about. Yeah, um, and and there's no question about that. The the beautiful literature, the 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 the, the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the Song of Songs. These are wonderful poetry. As I gather, they're even better in the Hebrew than in the English, but they're pretty good in English. But so what? I mean that that has nothing to do with the truth right. of propositions, which is a scientific proposition that when the brain decays, your personality your survives. That is a scientific proposition, which uh, seems to me at least 
very, very improbable indeed. Yet again, very well said on Dawkins' part there. And once again, like I've said recently on the show, I don't want to believe it's just lights out, but I believe in being honest with myself and being realistic. And she talked about religion giving people dignity. I think there's dignity and integrity and wanting to be factually honest and wanting to know what's actually true instead of just placating or pacifying yourself with beliefs you find comforting. But on that somewhat dark note, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter or X, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, which is always greatly appreciated, uh, now more than ever, but I won't go into it. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash doubt and help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, um, thank you so much for listening. And as always, until next time.